Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Sherrod International Third Quarter 2020 Results Conference Call and Webcast. At this time, our participants are in a listen-only mode. Following management presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone has any difficulties here in the conference, please press star zero for assistance at any time. I would like to remind everyone that this conference call is being recorded today, Thursday, November the 5th, 2020, at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. I would now like to turn the presentation over to Joe Racanelli, Director of Investor Relations and Communication. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that we will be following a presentation that is available from our website at Sherrod.com. We will be making forward-looking statements, and the risks associated with these statements are detailed in our presentation. In addition, copies of our Q3 MD&A and financial statements are available on our website as well as from CDAR. With me, as customary, are David Pathé, Sherrod CEO, Andrew Snowden, our CFO, and Steve Wood, our Chief Operating Officer. They will be reviewing our financial and operational performance for Q3 in a couple of minutes, and following management discussion, we will be opening up the call to questions. We will also be available for any follow-up discussions after today's call. Please go ahead, David. All right. Um, well, thanks, Joe. Um, and uh, let me say thanks to everybody for joining us as well uh, this morning. Um, it's another busy week with a lot of companies coming out with their earnings uh, right now and a lot of attention uh, still being paid to uh, election results coming out, of the south, uh, out from south of the border, so I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, Q3 was a busy quarter for us as well, a lot of moving parts, and it uh, brings up a few things that we want to spend a bit of time talking about this morning. Um, see a few highlights there on slide four, where I'm going to start before um, letting Steve and Andrew expand on, on a few things. Um, but highlights, really, the, the, by far the biggest event of the quarter was the culmination and closing of our balance sheet initiative, and we so would have seen that at the end of August. Uh, that uh, closing was really the culmination, uh, not just of a, probably a year's worth of work on, the, on that particular transaction, but also uh, probably six years' worth of work in really trying to protect uh, Sherrod from the threat of, uh, that about to be presented to, to our entire capital structure. Uh, the transaction itself uh, eliminated $300 million worth of debt, uh, eliminated uh, maturities in 21, 23, and 25, and replaced them with debt maturities in 2026 and 2029, uh, thereby giving us a lot more runway on our, on our debt maturity schedule, uh, reduced our cash interest expense by about a third, um, and it completed our exit from Embadavi and, and all the associated risks that that presented to us. Uh, and all of that was achieved with no uh, dilution to the equity, so it's a transaction that received very high support from, from all of our stakeholders and stakeholders and one we were uh, very pleased to get done. Um, it also greatly simplified our financial statements, and Andrew will talk a bit about a few of the impacts there in, in a couple minutes. Um, it was also a strong quarter from a production perspective. Uh, we hit our production targets uh, for the quarter, 
um, shows the continuing effectiveness of our, our COVID response, uh, which was an enormous amount of effort in part of a lot of people and, and continues to be, uh, but it's been very effective. Uh, and once again, we're really continuing to be on track to hit our guidance for the year, uh, thanks to all those efforts. Uh, production was a little lower in Q3 uh, compared to Q2. As we had talked about last quarter, we did move some scheduled maintenance as part of our COVID planning from the second quarter to the third quarter, which really moves our production around a bit, but it was all as we were expecting. Uh, pretty good quarter from a commodity price perspective as well, and I'll talk a bit more about the nickel and cobalt markets in a moment, but we did see both nickel prices and cobalt prices up on the quarter, um, strengthening the demand for, uh, for stainless steel production in China drove that, as did um, a greater interest and focus on the, the potential for nickel and batteries. Uh, as I say, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, we'll also talk a bit about uh, Cuban collections and our ongoing efforts to work with our Cuban partners through the COVID pandemic and the impact that, that is having on, on, uh, on Cuba and, and their ability to meet their obligations to us under our receivables agreements. Uh, we did see collections in the quarter uh, and some success in our conversations with the Cuban subsequent quarter and that a dividend that was declared in the third quarter. Uh, we reached agreement that all of that would be redirected to us, not just our share, uh, but, the, but the Cubans there as well, um, for an aggregate of $15 million U.S. coming to us, uh, which will help our cash flow and help produce the overdue receivables amounts. Uh, that's a quick run through just some of the highlights from the quarter. I'm going to have Steve now talk about a few of the operating uh, results and highlights uh, before Andrew gets into some finances, uh, and I come back and, uh, and talk about Outlook a little bit towards the end. Steve, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Dave. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, before we move on to the next slide, I'd like to note that we've devoted considerable efforts over the past couple of years to fostering an environment where best practices for employee health and safety are followed closely. Um, this has resulted in Sherit regularly ranking in the lowest quartile of our benchmark peer set data, and we continued this trend in Q3. Overall, our uh, total recordable injury frequency rate of 0.12 and lost time injury frequency rate of uh, 0.07, both of which were uh, improvements from our performance in Q2 of 2020. As well, uh, we continued to take necessary precautions to uh, deal with COVID-19, and we continued to follow the experts' advice to prevent uh, workplace transmission of COVID-19, and to date we've been uh, successful in doing so. I'll now move on to the next slide, and. Building on that theme, uh, Q3 saw the result, uh, or sorry, the release of our uh, 2019 sustainability report. In reading the report, you will see that we've made considerable progress on a number of fronts, uh, despite the uh, liquidity uh, restraints or constraints that we've been facing over the uh, last several years. Most notably, as you'll see from that slide six, uh, we've uh, maintained greenhouse emissions in 2019 comparable to 2018, uh, despite the increases in finished nickel and cobalt production of 8% and 4% respectively. Uh, we achieved our peer leading safety performance over a three year period. And during this time, our lost time injury frequency rate uh, decreased by 76%. And we uh, generated more than $500 million in uh, economic benefits in uh, economic uh, spin-offs for our host communities where Sherrod maintains operations, including Canada and Cuba. Turning now to slide seven, to date, COVID-19 has had limited impact on our production activities at each of our operations, including MOA and our refinery in Fort Saskatchewan, as well as uh, power and uh, oil production efforts. 
The only real impact that uh, COVID-19 has had uh, was to delay the annual uh, maintenance shutdown by several weeks, and it pushed it from Q2 into Q3, due mainly to contractor availability. Uh, this rescheduling, coupled with a four-day extension of the uh, plant shutdown, contributed to a drop in finished uh, nickel and cobalt production. But as you can see from slide seven, uh, COVID-19 had no impact to mixed sulfides production. And on a 50% basis, MOA produced uh, 4,671 tons of mixed sulfides in Q3, and that's up 12% uh, from last year. The improvement was largely due to normalized uh, availability of uh, diesel fuel supply relative to Q3 of last year when we were forced to implement uh, diesel preservation measures on account of sanctions imposed against uh, Venezuela, Cuba's primary source of fuel supply. Uh, turning to finished production, uh, we produced uh, 3,750 tons of nickel and 409 tons of cobalt in Q3 of this year. Uh, these totals represent the declines of 9% and 6% respectively over the same period of last year. Despite the extended uh, duration of the maintenance shutdown, costs for this year's uh, plant shutdown were consistent with last year's. Uh, the limited impact of COVID-19 on operations is due in large, uh, in large part to the uh, additional health and safety measures that were, we implemented uh, starting in early March. These measures uh, included practicing social distancing, uh, increased use of hand sanitizers, uh, workplace modifications, and uh, additional personal protective equipment. Our employee uh, health and safety are paramount at Sheraton. We'll take all the uh, necessary measures to pr uh, protect our employees. Uh, measures implemented to date will continue to be in effect for the foreseeable future. Now I'll turn over to uh, slide number eight uh, regarding the MOA JV. MPR, or our uh, mining, processing, and refining costs, declined by 20% in Q3 relative to last year. The decline was driven by a combination of factors, uh, including lower input costs for sulfur and fuel, as well as by expense savings generated via austerity measures we implemented uh, earlier in the year. These austerity measures were implemented in the wake of the uh, uncertainty caused by COVID-19. NDCC in Q3 was uh, $4.04 .04 US uh, per pound, and that represented an improvement of 8% from last year, and that's despite uh, lower nickel sales volume and lower realized prices for nickel and cobalt of uh, 8 and 5% respectively. The lower NDCC reflected the decline in NPR costs, uh, lower third-party feed costs, and the 25% uh, increase in cobalt byproduct credits. Next, I'll turn over to our oil and gas operations on slide nine. Uh, we produced uh, 2,886 barrels of oil per day in Cuba on a gross working interest basis in the quarter. This total uh, marked a decline of about 29% from last year when we produced uh, 4,060 barrels of oil per day. The decrease was due to natural reservoir declines, and as is to be expected, the decrease in the number of barrels produced uh, had a negative impact on our unit cost. Our unit costs for the quarter were $30.93 a, a barrel, and that's up 45% uh, from 21.40 per barrel for Q3 of last year. 
the oil and gas business remains on track uh, to achieve its production and unit cost targets for 2020, however. And now I'll turn over to slide 10 uh, regarding our power division. We produced 152 gigawatts of electricity in Q3, and that's down 15% from last year when we produced 180 gigawatts in the same period. The decrease was due to the reduced availability of uh, gas supply. Unit uh, operating costs in Q3 2020 were uh, $14.63, and that's up 1% uh, from $14.42 for last year. Uh, this increase was due to the timing of maintenance activities and some uh, lower production. And based on the performance through to the end of September, the uh, power business is on track to achieve its 2020 guidance for uh, production and planned capital spend. Uh, unit costs, however, have been uh, lowered to $20 uh, up to $21.50 per megawatt hour based on performance year to date and uh, our anticipated power production in Q4. Now I'll turn to uh, block 10 on slide 11. Um, in Q3, Sherritt uh, completed the analysis of on a second set of samples, uh, supplementing the preliminary testing that we did back in uh, the second quarter. Unfortunately, the, uh, the latest analysis confirmed that the water produced during the test period is from the lost circulation zone. Uh, those, who, those of you who've followed our uh, Block 10 developments will remember some of the challenges we experienced in this zone. And uh, it's located at a depth of approximately 5,300 meters and above the target oil reservoir. The analysis also confirmed that no uh, viable technical solution uh, to prevent the further flow of water into the existing well is possible. Um, while we still believe that the Block 10 reservoir contains oil, uh, the existing well cannot be used for future production purposes. Um, we are currently reviewing our options with respect to Block 10, including uh, seeking an earn-in partner. And at this time, we're not contemplating any further investments in Block 10 without first securing an earn-in partner. Uh, that concludes my uh, review of our operational results. Uh, I'll now turn it over to Andrew Snowden, our CFO, who will review our Q3 financial results in more detail. Andrew? Thanks, Steve, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, you know, I'll start my, my discussion with a, a review of our cash position and, and liquidity through the quarter. Um, and as you can see here on, on slide 13, our consolidated cash position at September 30th, de declined by around $7 million through the quarter. Um, and this was, was mainly due to costs associated with our balance sheet initiative, um, which included the $16 million in early consent payments which were made to note holders during the quarter. Um, as a reminder, the, the, our consolidated cash position that you see on this chart does include um, cash held by Enegas in Cuba, and so that's the 82.1 you see in, in blue here. And that amount was kind of relatively flat uh, through the quarter compared to the June 30th balance. Um, these costs were partially offset, though, by the positive working capital change of around $22 million that you see on this slide. And that's due to uh, timing of collections on ammonia sales, um, an increase in accounts payable related to uh, shutdown activities, um, which were the scheduled maintenance work at the fort site that was referred to earlier, um, and also higher Enegas collections during the quarter. 
Um, you know, despite these higher NAGAS collections in Q3, um, the collections were still below expectations. And as Dave mentioned earlier, um, you know, COVID-19 and the impact of U.S. sanctions has limited Cuba's access to, to foreign cur currency. And so those, uh, those collections are not where we, we hoped they would be. Um, but we are continuing to work with our Cuban partner to resolve the overdue amounts, and, and they have been working hard to flow as what they can. Um, you know, the recent MOA joint venture dividend redirection, again, that, that Dave referred to earlier, um, and you would have seen in our press release as an example of that. Um, and and in, that, in that example, um, you know, really 100% of the 15 million U.S. of dividends that were de declared by the MOA JV in Q3 were all paid to share it. Um, and so in addition to you know, share it receiving its 50% share of the dividends, so what would have been 7.5 million U.S. or 10 million Canadian, um, you know, General Nickel Company, our MOA joint venture partner, redirected its share of dividends to share it and um, to be applied against amounts owed to us from Anagas. Um, I, I do also want to point out that this cash, which was uh, you know, the 15 million U.S. or 20 million Canadian, uh, was distributed after the quarter end. And so that, that's not included in the cash position you see on this slide, and that will be that will kind of roll into our Q4 um, cash position. Um, th this redirection did involve a, a series of discussions between Sherat and our Cuban partner, and, and was made in accordance with the uh, the June 2019 overdue receivable agreement that we've we've talked to in the past. Um, you know, given where nickel and, and cobalt prices have been now for the past couple of months, we do anticipate receiving further dividends through the course of Q4. Um, however, that it would be too premature at this point to, to speculate on whether we'll also be able to get um, dividend redirection from our Cuban partner um, for those further dividends in, in Q4, but we'll uh, continue to have those discussions with our partners. Next, I'd like to spend a, a couple of minutes just walking through a number of the one-off accounting impacts you'll have seen in our, in our Q3 results, and they're, they're summarized here on, uh, on slide 14. The, the most significant changes in Q3 really relate to our balance sheet initiative, and, and that's impacted both our balance sheet and, and also our Q3 earnings uh, during the quarter. Now, firstly, our existing uh, $580 million of debenture debt that were maturing in uh, 2021, 23, and 25 were exchanged for $430 million of new second lien and, and junior notes uh, maturing in 2026 and, and 29. And, and this exchange resulted in a significant reduction in our debt and, and thereby a recognition of a, of a $143 million gain in our uh, Q3 income statement. Um, in, in addition, the exchange of our 12% ownership interest in the Embattivy joint venture for the $145 million we owed to Sumitomo and Corres uh, gave rise to a gain on disposition of about $260 million. Um, you know, that gain represents uh, the $145 million liability that was forgiven being greater than the assets transferred, and also a $130 million of unrealized foreign exchange gains that under the accounting rules were reclassified from accumulated other comprehensive income. The, uh, the operating results from Ambassivy as well for, for both actually 2020 and 2019 uh, were reclassified within our income statement and they're presented as discontinued operations for, for accounting purposes. So that, that has been a fair bit of noise in our Q3 income statement as a result of this transaction. Um, in addition, as Steve mentioned earlier, with the, uh, the, the data we got on, uh, on Block 10, 
Um, we did have a write-down on the assets and capital spares that related to Block 10 and, and were held on our balance sheet. Um, you know, until we are able to secure an interim partner, as Steve mentioned, we will not be making any any further investments into Block 10. But you'll see that there's an impairment of around 115 million dollars in our in our Q3 results. Finally, um, we, along with our our Cuban partner, converted the um, the Moa expansion loans into shares of the Moa joint venture during the quarter with the goal really of, of simplifying the Moa joint venture's capital structure. So you'll see this uh, summarized on the top right of uh, slide 14. Um, you know, this agreement resulted in a decrease of our expansion loan receivable balance, which was $274 million, and equivalent, an equivalent increase in our investment in the Moa JV. As, as both shareholders did have the same value of loan into the joint venture, and both shareholders do continue to hold a 50% interest in the business, so there's no change in, uh, in the equity ownership in any way, shape, or form. Um, but because of that simplified capital structure now, it re will result in all distributions from the Moe JV being in the form of dividends going forward, rather than historically where some of those distributions have been repayments against the uh, Moe expansion loan. Finally, I want to take a few moments just to review our new long-term debt obligations with you. And, and as you can see um, on the next slide here, so slide uh, 15, Share It Now has uh, no debt maturities for the next six years, with our, our next maturity coming up in uh, November 2026, uh, when the $358 million in, in second lien notes are due. Uh, these notes pay um, a semi-annually interest of, uh, in October and April of each year, and the annual interest rate is 8.5%. Um, and in fact, we actually made our first interest payment last Friday um, for the stub period from the issuance date, which was August 31 to uh, October 30, 31st. Um, so that was a, a $5 million payment we made uh, just last Friday. Um, in, in addition to the second lien note, there was also the uh, $75 million in junior notes, which were offered as additional consideration to our, our debt holders. And these notes uh, pay interest of 10.75% annually, um, twice a year. So those, uh, that's in January and, and July of each year. Um, and Shira has the option to pay that in cash or in PIC. Um, I should point out, though, that the default option for that interest is, is to be picked. Um, rather than rather than cash payments, and that that means that the um, you know additional junior notes will be issued in lieu of uh, cash interest payment, and that will uh, be, be settled at maturity of the instrument in uh, August of 2029. Um, finally, I, I should just point out that the close of the transaction resulted in the reclassification of our our debt obligations back to long-term liabilities, and you'll recall that many of those were classified as current last quarter due to uh, um, some defaults which were in place, but those defaults were cured as part of our uh, debt initiative, and, and so all of our debt is now back classified as, as long-term, um, and you'll see that as a, a key change in our balance sheet as well. So that concludes uh, my remarks. I'll, I'll pass the call back to Dave for his, uh, his uh, final comments. Okay, um, just a few things I wanted to touch on a little bit for you before we take your questions. Um, uh, the first is uh, the U.S. elections, uh, given uh, the impacts of, of U.S. policy towards Cuba, the impact that has on Cuba and consequently on us in, in any um, number of ways, as we've talked about over the last few years, and particularly the ramping up of that over the last few years. 
Uh, we have had quite a number of questions of what do the U.S. elections mean for us. Uh, and, and here we sit sort of 36 hours after, the, after election night, so with no clear winner. Um, a couple of things I can say is that, uh, first of all, as we've, said, we, we've never made business decisions um, uh, predicated on any assumption of what's going to happen in, in, any, in the U.S. or U.S. policy towards Cuba. Uh, and that has continued to be true through, through this, this period of the last few years and then leading up to this election. Um, over the course of the election, uh, Joe Biden did make some comments uh, about uh, his desire over time to return to more of the Obama-era policies, uh, U.S. policies towards Cuba. Um, uh, and that appears it may have costed some votes in Miami-Dade on Tuesday night. Um, but we, we think that there is a possibility of seeing that unfold over time. If there is, in fact, a Biden administration, it will no doubt have a lot of priorities uh, out of the gate. Um, but that has been their stated uh, policy uh, intention, and we think that would be positive for, for Cuba and, and, and consequently positive for us. Uh, similarly, as we've talked about a number of times, the, the, the Trump administration has had an increasingly aggressive policy towards Cuba. We've seen those sanctions ramping up in a number of rounds of, of, of increases over the last few years. Um, we have always planned our business that that is the reality. Uh, I know the Cubans have run their business on the assumption that that is not going to run their economy on the assumption that's not going to change any time, so they're prepared to carry on. In that circumstance, um, but as you can imagine, they are keen observers of U.S. politics, and we'll be we'll watching that election as, as closely as anyone. And we'll see in the coming hopefully days or coming days or weeks uh, how that ultimately plays out. I also wanted to um, talk a little bit more about uh, nickel and cobalt prices. I mentioned off the top that it was a good quarter for both, and you can see on the graph on page 18 that we did see both move up uh, nicely. And in the quarter, and we're seeing the benefits of that in some increasing in dividends out of our more joint venture in the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. Uh, since the quarter ended, those prices have come off a little bit, but been largely sustained. Um, and that is expected to continue, now, at least in the very near term here through, uh, through this quarter and into the new year. Um, there is some expectation and then certainly uncertainty with, with covid um, as we move on to outlook a bit on the next slide, uh, and, uh, and some softness in some industries that are stainless steel consumers, whether we'll see uh, some softness and lacking in demand in, in, into next year that could lead to some surpluses and, and some softness and volatility in the nickel price. Um, we are continuing to watch that. We're still having seen no trouble actually selling, uh, selling material, but there is some softness in the demand uh, generally, and some of the recent run-up in prices is driven on. Uh, not just strength of this being the steel market in China, but speculation about where batteries are going, given some high-profile events with, with Tesla and some high-profile announcements in Canada of automakers making new investments into, into electric vehicles. Um, so we continue to believe that even if there is some volatility and softness through the course of next year, depending on how the whole COVID uh, uh, pandemic plays out and the extent and impact of second waves and such, uh, that the underlying story of, of, of nickel is uh, as compelling as ever as the world moves uh, into uh, the electrification of transportation. Uh, it's still expected that nickel supply, 40% you know, of nickel supply, will go to electric vehicles and batteries by 2040, up from single-digit percentages today. And so that's still a fundamental shift of, in the nickel market that is, that is coming. Um, we did mention in our press releases, and some of you may have seen, that given that expected volatility um, uh, next year in particular, um, and, and the impact that that has on us from our cash flows and the impact that it's having in, in our ability to predict cash flows out of Cuba next year. Uh, we did take advantage of the recent run-up in, in nickel prices uh, to put some support in for our cash flows in 2021. 
Um, historically, we have not. Uh, we are quite deliberately not undertaking hedging uh, transactions with respect to the nickel price in order to preserve uh, the the market exposure uh, to the nickel price that, that shareholders look to us for. Um, but because there was an opportunity where the nickel prices were for us to uh, lock in some floors uh, on a synthetic basis, so they're all cash settled. There's no physical settlement here, but uh, but uh, guaranteeing us a, a nickel price of 650 on 25% of our share of production through next year does give us some certainty and predictability against the downside risk to our cash flow distributions from uh, from from the more joint venture in the event that we do see some some downside volatility in the nickel price over the course of next year. Uh, we went quite deliberately and did not cap the upside. We've uh, seen other companies put in place not just floors but but, but collars uh, with floors as well as caps to, uh, to uh, and as part of a hedging strategy. We deliberately chose not to do that. Um, given the, the theme of the electric vehicles, uh, I still firmly believe that there is an inflection point coming in the nickel market here that is, that is difficult to predict the timing of. And we certainly did not want to be on the on the wrong side of that with respect to any any, any hedging instrument. Uh, and so this opportunity that came along with with relative strength in nickel prices in the last few weeks uh, gave us the opportunity to give us some certainty on our cash flow for next year and preserve uh, the upside potential in the nickel market. As you know, and you've heard us say in the past, every dollar in the nickel price is worth about 50 million a year to us in, in cash flow. And we were keen to preserve that uh, that upside leverage in the nickel price. Um, longer term, now that we are through our, our our debt restructurings, which have really been the the primary focus of the company, not just for the past year, but for the past uh, uh, five, six, seven years, as I mentioned off the top. Uh, the other thing we will be looking to do is now bring greater focus to our, our technologies uh, business and the, uh, the the research and development and, and innovation that, that goes on there. Um, there are a number of, of uh, projects and opportunities that we're working on using the expertise that we've built up over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, making us a world leader in hydrometallurgy and, 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 and process or processing and development uh, to find new ways of processing, particularly nickel and cobalt, uh, lower costs, lower capital intensity, and, and, and make processes more environmentally friendly. Uh, that innovation has continued and gone on over the last few years, and there are a number of different projects we are working on that, as well as um, different step-out opportunities that are based in, uh, entirely in our wheelhouse and our expertise in, in the hydrometallurgic uh, processing. You've heard us speak of the bitumen project in the past, and we'll be beginning to look now at ways to bring, uh, find ways to commercialize that. We're also working on processes to um, using, again, our expertise to uh, remove arsenic from high arsenic copper concentrates, other methods of, of, of leaching uh, nickel, cobalt, and copper from, from ores. Uh, uh, and now that the, our debt restructuring is behind us and we have some runway, uh, we, we see seeing more greater focus from us in terms of how we look for past to, to bring some of those uh, uh, ideas and innovations. Uh, into reality and into commercial, and put them on paths towards commercialization and great incremental sources of cash flow for share. Um, given the increasing demand that we are expecting for nickel and cobalt and copper uh, over the coming years with the electrification of vehicles and transportation, um, we think there is a, a real market opportunity for us, and we now have the, the timelines to be able to, to, to devote some focus to that and, and, and demonstrate the differentiating expertise that exists within share on those kinds of initiatives. So that's what we really want to, to tell you about this morning. As you can see, there's been a lot going on. It's been a busy quarter, but a very productive quarter. Um, as a result of our restructuring, we have the, the strongest balance sheet that we've had really since before the financial crisis and our, and our introduction of the, uh, the Embattity Project, uh, and we're on track to reach our production guidance for the year. Um, and I believe we really are now at a, at a turning point for the company, given what we've been able to accomplish and potentially on the cusp of an inflection point with respect to nickel prices. 
and the opportunities that that creates for us as a company. Um, so we are feeling um, quite excited now about what the, what the future holds. Uh, and at this point, operator, um, we'd be happy to take any, any questions the analysts may have. Thank you, sir. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, if you would like to ask a, a question, please press star, then the number one. Your first question is from Orest, Wakata, with Scotiabank. Well, hi, good morning. Um, I was wondering if we could get a bit of color on the Cuban oil and gas business. Uh, obviously, uh, Block 10 didn't pan out. And I'm just wondering what that means going forward. Um, is that business effectively winding down after this year, or do you still have production, uh, and is it material after after this year? Hey, Orst, I'll, I'll start that. Um, right, so Block 10, as, as you heard today and saw in the press release, the, the drilling campaign that we undertook there um, has ultimately not succeeded. As Steve alluded to, um, the, what, the issues that we had with um, uh, lost circulation zones on the way down the hole uh, did lead to some uh, some excess water from those zones getting into the into the reservoir. Uh, the work we had done back at the beginning of the year was to try and seal those off if that water was coming in uh, through the drill line. Um, and but after sealing that off, uh, that water, same water, was still getting in. And, and the conclusion we've come to is that that is finding its way through the formation. Uh, despite the fact you'll recall in, in the past conversations we've had around to the fold and thrust geology that we work with, we reach those multiple sheets. Typically, we do get isolation between the sheets that prevents that kind of fluid flow from one sheet to the to the next. Um, but here, clearly, there is some some connectivity outside of our drill hole that the, that wasn't really detectable from the uh, from from the seismic and the work that was done in advance, and, and that's the result of this. Um, nonetheless, we do continue to believe that there is oil in both the lower sheets that we were targeting and, and the upper zone of that. Um, we're given where oil prices have gone at the moment um, uh, and, uh, and the, where we are as a company from a liquidity perspective at the moment. We are not spending more money on uh, that business at the moment. Um, we do think if, if conditions improve both market-wise and in Cuba, there will be opportunities to attract capital and partners into perhaps Block 10 or other other blocks that we have rights to in Cuba. Uh, but in the near term, you're right, our existing production, as you've seen over the last couple of years, has declined given the age and, and, and reservoirs of those, and those production sharing contracts uh, do expire at the end of the first quarter next year. Um, we've seen a significant ramping down of the scale of our operations in Cuba as a result of, of where we are on, on uh, and, and our existing production and on Block 10. Um, in the future, so we, our production will disappear uh, next year and from our existing blocks if those con contracts revert back to the Cubans. Um, whether there is any further activity in, in Cuba will depend on whether uh, we're able to attract new capital or, or, or market conditions uh, changing. Okay. And, and is there, I mean, w when those wind down, is there going to be some kind of kind of annual holding costs or maintenance costs? to keep that business sort of on on pause from a cash flow perspective? Uh, no, I mean, at that point in time, we've already scaled down significantly given the, the, that the existing contracts are really basically in, in a run-out uh, position. Um, we will still have the power business in Cuba, but, but the, the cost of that business, the division as a whole, will be, will be reduced uh, significantly as a result if there is no further activity in the oil business. Okay. And then just finally on Block 10, um, the impairment, I think, was $116 million. Is that indicative of the cash you've spent trying to drill it 
over the last couple of years, or does that also include a bunch of historical stuff as well? Uh, there's some historical stuff and some parts in there as well. Um, I don't have a specific breakdown for you today, but if you're interested in that, we could get you. We can get you a bit more detail on the composition of that. Just how we arrived at that number. Okay, but but I take it's probably close to 100 million dollars just in the last couple of years. Would that? Be uh, yeah, I think that ballpark. That's that's, that's got to be right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Your next question is from Don DeMarco with National Bank. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, what is the cost for the uh, the, the uh, nickel hedging, 25% of your production for one year? Um, so those are the derivative contracts, um, and they're actually a series of monthly contracts over the course of uh, uh, January through December 2021. Um, they were placed uh, over the course of a couple of days. I, the aggregate cost uh, is order of magnitude was about $5 million. Okay. And um, given your outlook uh, for nickel and, and some concerns about uh, demand, would you consider increasing that to maybe a 50% weighting? Well, we spent a lot of time in the last few weeks looking at uh, various options. Um, and, and, and what we were budgeting and expecting out of the joint venture in terms of dividends next year. Uh, and how much downside protection, because you, know, you can do, you know, the variables you can play with is you know, at what price level you set the floor, you know, and at what proportion of uh, production, or, you know, you, you enter into a relative you know, the synthetic hedge. Um, in terms of giving us certainty and clarity on our cash flows at different nickel price scenarios, uh, the cost of, of hedging and the, and, the, and the floor at 650, where it is relative to, to analyst forecast next year. Uh, that is what we determined was really going to be the optimal spot for us to be in. That's what we executed on. Okay, thanks. And, and finally, on the RCF extension, can you provide a little bit of color on how that process is going? Like you received a three-month extension. What is being negotiated here? Is it an increase in size, upsizing the RCF, or is it purely just to extend the maturity? Um, it's really around covenants, um, and we were looking for uh, and, and, and expect to retrieve, and I think we'll see, I think we're now getting that we're pretty much there, the, you know, the working relationship with the banks has been been strong throughout our whole restructuring process, um, and it was only once that got done that we got into the conversations more with the banks about what is a little more significant extension. We're looking at probably an 18-month extension to the revolver and an, an easing of the covenants compared to what we had before our restructuring given the stronger position that the balance sheet is in now. Um, I think the facility will end up in, uh, at the same size and the, the same banks uh, given our history with, with all of them. Um, and I think you'll see news from us in the next couple of weeks, but the conversations have really been around uh, easing the covenants package compared to what was there before. Okay, that's all for me. Thanks, David. Thanks, Tom. Your next question is from Greg Barnes with TD Securities. Thank you. David, with the winding down of the oil business, and you noted in this quarter you had reduced availability of natural gas for the power business, is that going to be an ongoing issue for the power business now? Um, the power business it, it has seen over the last few years those declines in gas availabilities. Um, that expectation will continue somewhat, although we do expect that to, to level off a little bit. The production fields that we were 
operating will revert back to the Cubans, but they will be continuing to operate them. Um, so there is gas there to run those businesses for quite some time yet. The, you know, our, our contracts on those businesses expire in 2023. However, I will be in, in continuing our discussions with the Cubans about seeing those extended and with more time to recover the, the overdue amounts uh, that are that are owing to us. And we expect to be able to achieve that in time. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the generally reduction of of, uh, of gas level availability will, will continue to some, to some extent in the years of the future. Um, ultimately, the right solution for the Cubans is to get into LNG importation. Uh, they've looked at that with different uh, parties for, for years. Um, their challenge there is attracting the capital to do it, and that's been made more difficult by, by COVID. But ultimately, that would be the right direction for the country to go. But you, you do expect to extend your agreements on the power business beyond 2023, I that's think is what you said. Point, yeah. yeah, from the high-level okay. conversations we've had in Cuba, that, that, that isn't what we expect will happen. Okay. And Andrew, just on the equitization of the MOA expansion loans, can you explain that a little bit and how your ownership interest doesn't change? Sure. So um, so those loans are, are, are long-standing loans, as, as you're, you're familiar with, Greg, um, with, with both Sherrett and, and our MOA JV partner in Cuba, which is General Nickel Company, um, both funding expansion um, back in uh, kind of 2005 period, um, and, and during that time, both Sherrett and our Cuban partner both both loaned the same amount of funds into into the JV. So we had equivalent loans of about 270 million dollars each into the JV. So so during the quarter when those loans were converted to to equity, new shares were issued equally to both Sherrett and to our Cuban partner. And, and because because that was those were issued on an equal basis, we we still both hold a 50% interest in in that joint venture. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. That's fine. Thank you. Your next question is from Tony Robson with Global Mining Research. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my uh, question. Um, obviously, the receivables you've getting out of Cuba has picked up. Of late, uh, with that 15, uh, sorry, 16.3 million during the quarter on the uh, energy side, and the 15 million dollars post that um, date. Uh, just wanted to, I think Andrew touched on in, in part in his presentation, but could we expect to see the receivables stay at a fairly healthy rate uh, for the coming quarter and well, six months or whatever? Thank you. Thanks, Tony. How are you doing? Um, the that that's certainly what we are working on with with our partners. Uh, COVID nineteen has had a pretty dramatic impact on on Cuba uh, as a whole. Um, they've done quite a good job, as we have spoken about in the past, in terms of managing the the disease and infection within the country itself. Um, but it has had quite a significant impact. Um, you know, virtually put their tourism business, which is one of their largest sources of foreign currency, uh, went to zero within the matter of a couple of weeks in in March, uh, and hasn't yet come back. They are now working towards getting some resort areas open and hoping to recover some of the tourist season over the course of this uh, this winter. But it remains to be seen just how much uh, demand there will actually be from that. From uh, They typically draw their tourists uh, primarily from Canada and some from Europe. Uh, and the extent to which they're able to do that will depend on, on how, the, how the disease progresses in some of those jurisdictions over the, over the next six months. Um, you know, clearly, it's an, an important issue for us, um, and it's a, a topic of regular conversation with our Cuban partners at, uh, 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 from, from top to bottom. 
um, there is a, a real intent on the part of our Cubans uh, partners to, uh, to to meet their obligations to us, and they recognize the importance of that uh, to us and to them in terms of the, the uh, keeping the gas business going and their ability to attract new foreign capital into the country at some point. Um, but but the hard currency is scarce on the ground at the moment, and, and they're having pretty difficult economic times. So there is some uncertainty around that. Um, seeing this dividend redirection is certainly encouraging, and. As Andrew mentioned, we're expecting to see more dividends out of the joint venture over the course of the fourth quarter based on where prices have been in the last few weeks. Um, and there'll be an ongoing conversation about trying to capture a disproportionate share of those ex- uh, expected future dividends as well, as well as trying to get more predictability about what, uh, what cash flows will look like through through 2021. And I expect that one way that the Cubans will find enough uh, to, to kind of keep things going. And, and if the disease improves uh, globally, they, they will see the benefits of that. And and, and consequently, so will we. Um, but uh, trying to manage that has been a, a big priority for us over the last few months, and, uh, and that was part of the motivation behind the, the hedging strategy for 2021 as well, to just give us some certainty of a minimum level of cash flow given the, the heightened uncertainty that the COVID-19 predicts, uh, creates not just on nickel prices but on, on collections next year. Um, I appreciate that doesn't really answer your question, but it hopefully that at least gives you some, some context of the of the of the dynamic and the ongoing relationship there, Tony, is there is that helpful? Uh, it is. Thank you. Um, I understand uh, Crystal Ball is to some extent here. Um, can I have a follow-up question, please? Completely different topic. Um, cobalt. Uh, nice to see that it's recovered from the COVID lows of, of April and so on, but it, the price still seems to be a bit soft. And given we still have uh, Matandras closed, that was twenty-five thousand tons, so a huge supplier to the to the world. Um, is it the, the price at fourteen, fifteen dollars a pound just reflects fairly weak economic data ex China? Um, and is there any hope for or any strength in the cobalt market you see in the short term? Ignoring the sort of longer term EV story. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's another invitation to Crystal Ball gave somewhat. Uh, but <laughs> I guess what I what I can tell you is the you know the physical you know, spot market. Uh, is in better shape than it was uh, three or four months ago. Uh, a few you know, back in the, in the spring, early summer, uh, the world was relatively awash in, in physical cobalt, and, and, uh, and, and some producers were having trouble uh, moving material. Um, that has tightened up somewhat. Uh, there is a, there is a, a, a bit riskier market for, for cobalt now, and perhaps that is driven by some of the, the contractions in supply we've seen as a, as a, for, for various reasons. Um, and so that that does potentially bode well for for for, for continued improvement in the, in the cobalt pricing, but you do still have all the other uncertainties in the, in the global economy at the moment that that could continue to push that one way or one way or the other. So um, the only thing I can really tell you definitively on that, I guess, at the moment, Tony, is that the, we have seen a bit of strengthening the price price the pricing, and the, the physical market is in, in better shape than it was a few months ago. Okay. Clear. Uh, thank you. No further questions. Thanks, at this time, at this time, there are no further questions. I would like to turn the call back over to management for closing remarks. All right. Well, as ever, uh, once again, thanks for joining us. Um, we'll continue on uh, with uh, working on the things we've been talking about here. And as we saw, Q3 was a busy quarter, and, and busy times uh, continue. As Joe said off the top, um, we're always happy to, to, to catch up later if, as you're working through um, where us and where we're at. Any other thing, questions that come up, uh, happy to connect and, and, and help you work through those and talk about what we're, what we're doing these days. So 
thanks for taking the time to join us this morning, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for participating in today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.